Hey listeners, we have a very rare opening for an associate sound designer mixer here at DeFacto Sound. That's my sound design studio and the studio behind 20,000 Hertz. To learn more, visit jobs.defactosound.com. This application window closes on May 22nd. Now, onto the show. You're listening to 20,000 Hertz, the stories behind the world's most recognizable and interesting sounds. I'm Dallas Taylor. This is the story behind the sounds we hear on an airplane and how to take the fear out of flying. Tons of people have a fear of flying. Even celebrities who have to travel all the time for work share in these fears. People like Jennifer Aniston, Ben Affleck, Sandra Bullock, and Colin Farrell have all been reported to struggle with this. Even John Madden, the former NFL coach turned TV commentator. He had such a big fear that he famously traveled cross-country between Monday night football games in his custom bus, dubbed the Madden Cruiser. He stopped flying after a panic attack he suffered on a flight. And he's not alone. As many as one in three Americans is either afraid to fly or has some uneasiness about getting on an airplane. And for many, the sounds, the sensations, even the thought of flying can trigger a full-on panic attack. So, some quick math. At any given time, there are as many as 5,000 aircrafts in the skies above the U.S. alone. That's according to the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. Now, the International Air Transport Association tells us that the average flight has 65 people on it. That means, at this very moment, while you're listening to this podcast, there could be over 100,000 people white-knuckling it across the friendly skies here in the U.S. alone. And the National Institute of Mental Health says that roughly 20 million Americans in total are afraid to fly. So what's up with this? Why are so many people afraid to fly? Is this an isolated fear? Or is it a common symptom across multiple conditions? And what role does sound play in triggering these fears? The fear of flying is called aviophobia. That's Dr. Devika Fiorillo, a clinical psychologist with advanced training in addressing trauma, anxiety, and related disorders. About half of the people tend to be afraid of flying because they're afraid of crashing. There's also the other half, which primarily tends to be people who are either claustrophobic, so they are afraid of being in these enclosed spaces, or people who have agoraphobia, which is the worry about having a panic attack when escape is difficult. Sometimes the fear of flying originates after a bad flight situation. So someone might have been in a flight where there's a lot of turbulence, possibly an emergency landing, something somewhat traumatic or highly stressful. If we're being honest, flying can be stressful on a good day. By the time you get to the airport, check your bags, take off your shoes, pull out your laptop, go through the screening process, and heaven forbid you have to get a pat down. Step this way. By the time you reach your gate, you've been through a lot already. But this is about more than inconvenience. For some, being afraid to fly can significantly interfere with their ability to earn a living or spend time with loved ones. And for travelers already on edge before they even leave the ground, any unknown sound can trigger an attack. 
someone that's coming in with a fear of flying is already coming in with some vulnerabilities. Not every person who has a fear of flying is afraid of the same sounds. When they notice the sound, immediately our brains work very quickly. How does this information get processed? Does it go through this really quick fear route, which is our very primitive system, how we survived? Or it might decide to go a different route where it engages this higher ability to reason. Our capacity as humans for reason and abstract thought allows us to solve complex problems. But the built-in primal fear response can lead us down a dark path. If you think about problem solving and imagination, there is definitely a link there. Imagination, when it comes to fear of flying, is not very productive imagination. One, it takes you away from the moment, the here and now. And two, you're often engaging in these what-ifs that may or may not occur. The moment your brain perceives that there might be real or imagined danger, your systems start to go into this panic mode. Our bodies respond pretty automatically. So you might notice a lot of trembling, shaking, lightheadedness, dizziness, trouble with breathing. Your body's getting ready to fight or to flee the situation. The problem with fear of flying, though, is once you develop that problem, you're more likely to pay attention to all of the information that is in your environment, and this is where sounds come in, telling you that something dangerous could happen. Once you go into that mode, your senses are heightened and you're looking for any piece of information that really feeds into this narrative that flying is dangerous and that itself becomes sort of a vicious cycle. Basically, our brains are looking for affirmation for its preconceived notion that every little creak, bump, or bang must mean that the wing is breaking off or the engine is about to blow up. Our mind can be an internal echo chamber. Of course, in this age of YouTube and the ability of a news source to bring the worst possible, extremely rare situations to the forefront of our attention in an instant, it's unnaturally easy to find examples to feed this internal fear-focused echo chamber. That is the sound of an entire airplane rattling around like a washing machine, posted by Instagram user Masaya. In 2017, an AirAsia X flight was forced to turn around when something went wrong with an engine. Passengers had to endure that vibration for close to two hours as the plane limped home, with the captain asking everyone to pray. Twice. And who can forget the miracle on the Hudson? Cactus 1539 In 2009, U.S. Air Flight 1549 makes a forced water landing in the Hudson River after striking a flock of Canada geese after takeoff from New York's LaGuardia Airport. Cactus 1529, turn right 280. You can land runway right, right. 1 at Teterboro. We can't do it. Okay, which runway would you like at Teterboro? We're going to be in the Hudson. I'm sorry, say again, Cactus? I don't know. I think he said he was going to the Hudson. These are the kind of close calls that give even the hardiest of travelers pause. But isn't air travel supposed to be one of the safest forms of travel around? Here's Tom Finnegan a commercial airline pilot with more than 19,000 flight hours and 20 years in the business. The reliability of these airplanes is nothing short of astonishing. They work and they last a long time. Tom says that airlines in the U.S. and Europe offer the best combination of engineering, maintenance, and training in the world. 
we're very lucky here in the U.S. The aviation system here from the small regional airlines up to the big global airlines are so safe that it's taken for granted a lot. The uh, percentage of times we have to do it right isn't just 99%. It's 99 and I think out to like seven decimal points how often we do it right here in the U.S. Our system is so safe it's boring, which is a good problem to have in a lot of ways. These airplanes are designed to a level where if one system fails, as a passenger, it's going to be invisible to you. They're built with the idea that they are going to keep going in the event of one failure or even a couple of failures. The airplanes I fly have two engines. They're mounted on each wing. And before I take off, I already know if the engine blows up on the runway, I have either enough room left of runway to stop or I have enough power to continue to take off on one engine. That's one of the things that we practice absolutely the most, those takeoff failures. Your flight crews train constantly for those worst case scenarios so passengers don't have to worry about them. And all of that training seems to be paying off. According to the FAA, if you happen to be the 1 in 11 million that could be involved in an airline accident, you still have a 96% chance of survival. Flying is estimated to be 200 times safer than driving, and most of us don't think twice before getting behind the wheel. Intellectually, we get it, but emotionally, that's a whole different story. So what's the solution? How do we cope with these fears? And what are those noises on an airplane? More on that in a minute. By the time I need to hire someone at my sound design studio, DeFacto Sound, I'm already slammed. That's why Indeed is super useful. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. Indeed takes all of the labor-intensive parts of searching and matching for candidates and does them for you. Indeed's smart matching engine will read through dozens of applications and cross-reference them against each other. Indeed will also send out messages to all the candidates that didn't make it with just one click. It's not just about saving time, it's also about quality. According to their own data, 93% of employers say that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. And we've got a great deal for you. Right now, our listeners can get a $75 sponsored job credit at Indeed.com Hertz. That's Indeed.com slash H-E-R-T-Z. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We've heard a lot about why so many people have such a fear of flying. And we also know that flying is one of the safest ways to get around. Now, let's talk about how people cope with these fears so that they don't have to interfere with work, vacations, or visiting family. For that, we turn back to Dr. Fiorillo. Facing your fears can be really difficult because it's almost like you're playing this tug of war with your physiological system. On the one hand, you may really want to face your fears. On the other hand, going into it is definitely something that will bring about, for most people, a lot of anxiety. It's that aversion to being uncomfortable, to being afraid, that leads some people to create what Dr. Fiorillo calls safety behaviors. There's a fine balance between distraction 
and also just being here in the present moment. Because if you always distract yourself, you don't necessarily teach yourself how to cope with the issue. So they might go on a flight, but they might endure it with a lot of distress and they might take a lot of alcohol as a way to numb their system down. Somebody else may take a sleep aid. Um, There's definitely uh, benzos, anti-anxiety medications that people can sometimes take. There might be other people who really research thoroughly what each and every sound means, what kind of planes are safer. The problem with people who fear flying often is that they are getting a lot of information. It's just not from the right sources. So knocking back a few drinks might get the job done on that cross-country flight, but it's not exactly a long-term solution for conquering your fear of flying. And filling your brain with the wrong information can feed into that vicious cycle of what therapists call catastrophizing. Earlier, Dr. Fiorillo brought up this connection between imagination and problem solving, and the tendency to fear the worst when someone hears an unknown sound on their flight. Let's go back to our commercial airline pilot, Tom, and see if he can take some of the mystery out of these sounds for us. The sounds a passenger would hear during the pre-flight setup, you'll hear different chimes as the seatbelt sign is turned on. You can hear different things if you're in the last row versus the front row or if you're over the wing. And if you happen to be sitting on the right side of the airplane, you're probably going to hear it when they close one of the cargo doors. It's a heavy-duty latch, and it kind of clunks into place. Once the cabin door is closed, and the airplane is being pushed away from the gate. There's a tow bar and there's a tractor that they push you back from. You can hear that clunky noise of disconnecting the uh, tow bar as well as feel it. You'll hear a difference in the air conditioning system. Then you'll hear the engine slowly start to wind up, that turbine sound. The airplane engines are started by compressed air that comes off a small turbine engine. Most of them are in the tails of these airplanes. The pilots redirect the air from the air conditioning systems, so you can't air condition the airplane at the same time you start the engines. Once the engines are started, the pilots do a few more checks up in front. Electric panel, check set. Batteries, check normal. Fuel panel, check set. I tell the co-pilot to set the flaps to whatever position our performance requires that day. Flaps are the things that are on the front of the wing and on the back of the wing, and they basically change the shape of the wing in order to allow the airplane to do different things. That covers most of the pre-flight bells and whistles the passengers may hear. But once the engines rev and the plane takes to the sky, fears can be triggered by sounds and sensations and the air itself is responsible for both. Most of the airplanes I've flown take off, cruise, landing. The noise level up in the cockpit is at least 80 decibels. And depending again on the airplane and where you are in the airplane, it can be as low as 70 decibels in first class, which generally is the quietest part of the uh, cabin. So the wind noise outside the airplane, that accounts for a lot of the overall kind of white noise, the din that you hear. Now, light and moderate turbulence we encounter 
all the time. It's nothing at all to be worried about. It's a disturbance in the airflow over the wings. And the airflow over the wings is how the airplane generates lift. And if it's disturbed, you'll feel it as a bump. The density of the air can impact how much lift can be generated at a given speed. When you hit different pockets of temperature, density, rising air, and any other air disturbance, you feel these interruptions as turbulence. All of this is perfectly normal. The worst thing that happens is a flight attendant who's out of her seat or a passenger who's in their seat without their seatbelt on can get thrown around the airplane and injured. Things can come loose. The overhead bins may pop open and a bag will fall out. But honestly, for the structural integrity of the airplanes, it's incredibly rare that anything happens that the airplane is actually destroyed in flight. It just doesn't happen. That pretty much eliminates the worst-case scenario at 35,000 feet. But for many, it's the final approach that triggers their worst anxiety as the ground starts to get a whole lot closer. Once you start to descend and come in for landing, you may notice the engine noise has changed. The high-frequency whine maybe is a little bit lower as they reduce the thrust on the engines to have the airplane start to come in and land. And once you get closer to the ground, that is when the pilots reconfigure the shape of the wing. And as they extend the flaps, you may hear that hydraulic pump. And as that happens, you can sometimes even hear a change in the airflow over the wing. Once the pilot lands the airplane, you'll notice on the tops of the wings, big boards come up. They're called speed brakes or spoilers, and they change the airflow over the wing so there's no more lift. And the last thing that you'll notice, the engines accelerate or rev up as the pilot adds power to the reverse thrust system. There are doors inside the cowl that redirect the air instead of out of the back of the engine, out the side. And if you happen to be sitting there, you can hear it hitting the side of the fuselage. Ladies and gentlemen, kindly remain seated with your seatbelts fastened until we have parked at the gate. So now we know. And while knowing may be half the battle, there has to be a better way to handle air travel than just trying to stave off panic attacks or avoid flying altogether. According to Dr. Fiorillo, the answer may lie in one of the same treatments that's used for post-traumatic stress disorder, exposure therapy. So the idea with exposure therapy is that you really give an opportunity to the person to face what they're fearing. Some people are afraid of taking off, Some people are afraid of landing. Some people are afraid of turbulence. There's different sounds that people are afraid of. Some people have this anxiety that shows up even in the context of walking around in the airport before you get to the flight itself. Every person looks different. Think about exposure as this idea of allowing yourself to have difficult thoughts and feelings in the context of a particular stimulus, whether that's a sound, the sight of an airplane, 
any of those things, we can get creative to think about how you can do that, even if you're not ready to get on an airplane yet. Nowadays, there's a lot of work on mindfulness in particular in terms of anxiety disorders. And it's basically like grounding. It has some of this similar principles, but this idea of taking your attention from the thing that is causing you a lot of fear, in this case, it might be the sound, to something that is here that you can touch, that you can feel, that you can come into contact with. So you have to sort of remind yourself that just because you feel this doesn't mean the bad thing is going to happen. It's sort of validating the emotion to a certain extent, but also understanding that it doesn't necessarily mean that something is really going to happen. Now that we're challenging our fears, we're not avoiding, now what do we do? Well, for starters, try something we take for granted every day. I'll give you a hint. One thing that you might have heard a lot of is this idea of doing some deep breathing, and there is some value to doing that, which is to slowing down the way you breathe and really making sure you're breathing from your abdomen rather than from your chest, which is the tendency when we're having a panic attack. The other is really to get people to engage in the current moment on other things that are happening right here, right now. This sometimes is referred to as grounding, So holding on to things that are next to you, and you can engage in any of your senses here. Noticing the feeling as you move your fingers through the chair you're sitting on. Noticing what the kid across the aisle looks like and what that person might be doing. Taking in information from the environment that you might not otherwise be attending to. How do we know when things have gotten out of hand? When does being uneasy on an airplane go from being a minor inconvenience to an obstacle requiring treatment? There are a couple of different things to look out for. One is, have you really not just avoided flying, but has this actually caused problems for you? Has it taken both time and emotional resources from you? Have you missed out on significant life events because of flying? Is it causing problems for you occupationally? Maybe you work in a setting where flying tends to be a semi-regular thing that you need to do. Is it limiting your life in a way that's causing you some pain? It's often said that admitting you have a problem is the first step towards healing. How bad is your fear of flying? Did you identify with the safety behaviors Dr. Fiorillo mentioned? Did your anxiety levels go up just listening to the discussion? Perhaps now that you know what many of those mystery sounds are, your next flight won't be so nerve-wracking. And even if you aren't afraid to fly, hopefully you've gotten some insight into how pervasive fear and anxiety can be. And if your fears are stopping you from enjoying the life you want, it's okay to seek help. The resources are out there. Doctors, counselors, even apps. Whatever route your journey takes, I think we can all agree, we could all use a little less turbulence in our lives. Twenty Thousand Hertz is produced out of the studios of DeFacto Sound, a sound design team that supports ad agencies and storytellers. Check out recent work for collaborators such as Nike, Netflix, National Geographic, Discovery, and more at defactosound.com. 
This episode was written, produced, and edited by Jim McNulty. And me, Dallas Taylor. With help from Sam Sneebly. It was sound designed and mixed by Nick Spradlin. Huge thanks to commercial airline pilot Tom Finnegan for giving us his firsthand experience, as well as Dr. Devika Fiorillo for her professional expertise. The music in this episode is from Musicbed, and I'm a huge fan. They represent more than 650 great artists, ranging from indie rock and hip-hop to classical and electronic. Head over to music.20k.org to hear our exclusive playlist. You can find us all over the internet, and there are a bunch of ways to get in touch. So if you have a show idea or just want to chat, reach out. One way you can find us is at hi at 20k.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. The most important thing you could ever do for us is completely free, and that's to tell a friend through text message, in person, or telling your network how much you love the show on social. Word of mouth is absolutely critical to podcast survival. You'll find all of the links I mentioned in the show description. Thanks for listening. 